Welcome to Scooby Shack Radio, episode 47, recorded Sunday, December 6th, 2020. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Hi, everyone, and thank you for listening to Scuba Shack Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Cincerpino. Well, after some really nice weather in November, winter 2020 has paid us a visit. Yesterday, we had a nor'easter come through New England. We were on the fringe of the heavy snow, but we did see a lot of cold rain, followed by about an inch or so of heavy wet snow. Need to think warm thoughts. That's just what we did last Thursday night when we had a virtual get-together with folks to talk about our 2021 trip to Dumaguete in the Philippines. Wow, I can't wait to travel again and get out there. On today's show, I'm going to tell you about something I did with my underwater camera system this week. Then we'll wrap up our ongoing discussion on coral conservation with a look at NOAA's Coral Reef Conservation Strategic Plan. And for your next dive, we'll head to one happy island, Aruba. So here we go. It was exactly one year ago today that we arrived in Dumaguete in the Philippines after three days of diving in Puerto Galera. I had just gotten a new underwater camera system from Michaelite. It's the Olympus TG6 with a housing, a DS51 strobe with a TTL connector or through the lens connection, and a three inch dome port. I got the system right before I left on the trip so I didn't have much time to practice with it. Well, as things turned out this year, I didn't get to use the system at all. That got me to thinking, maybe I should take some time to refresh myself on the camera and the setup. And that's just what I did. First off, because I had gotten the system right before we left, I had to cobble together a way to organize, pack, and transport the camera system from various storage pouches and containers I had, plus a small suitcase to carry it on the plane. Not optimal to say the least. All of this went on the shelf when we got home. I felt pretty good about how I cleaned everything before we left the Philippines, but you never know, and salt water is brutal. First thing was that I had to take everything out of the various storage containers and do an inventory of all the components, and then start to visualize again how it all goes together. Luckily, I had all of the instructional pamphlets to help me figure it out. Then, I inspected each piece to make sure it was clean and operated properly. Luckily, I did do a good job in cleaning all the components before we left. 
There was just a little bit of crud in the action tray handle that I needed to clean out. One thing that I didn't do before we left the Philippines was to lubricate the various parts that require a little bit of silicone. Now I'm thinking that in the future, I'm going to take everything out when we get home from the dive trip and clean it again and then lubricate things as necessary before packing it away for the next trip. So now that I had re-familiarized myself with all the parts, it was time to put them all together. That took a little longer than it should have, as I had to try and remember how to do it. Funny how quickly our knowledge erodes. With the housing, strobe, and dome port properly assembled, I now realize that the knowledge of the camera itself has eroded. The camera battery needed to be charged, and I had to refresh myself on just how to charge it up. With that done, I finally got the camera into the housing, and the system is ready to go. But am I ready? Not really. Like I said, my knowledge and familiarization with the camera has faded. So now, my next step is to go through the camera's operating manual. It's packed with information you need to know. And then, I'm going to keep it assembled and practice with it. Yeah, I won't be underwater, but I want to develop the muscle memory so when I do get to take it diving, I'll be ready. There's also some great tutorials and cheat sheet for camera settings on the Icolite website. I'm hoping that practicing adjusting the camera settings will allow me to do this better when underwater. The last thing I realized is that I need to get a better storage system for the camera. I've done some research there and still trying to decide. So this was an interesting evolution and something I would recommend you consider. And it doesn't necessarily need to be your underwater camera system. When's the last time you looked at your dive computer? Even when the dive season is over, you shouldn't forget about your dive equipment. Take it out, put it together, test it out. You can keep your knowledge fresh, even when you're not getting wet. We've been talking a lot over the past several months about coral reefs, coral reef conservation, and coral reef restoration. I've discussed the coral reef conservation paddy specialty, provided some information on the Coral Restoration Foundation, and reviewed the documentary film Chasing Coral. In the last episode, I did a segment on the Coral Reef Conservation Act of 2000. Today, I want to wrap up the dialogue on coral reef conservation with a look at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Coral Reef Conservation Program's 2018 Strategic Plan. First, up front of the strategic plan is a message from Jennifer Koss, who is the director of the program. And Jennifer puts the economic value of coral reefs in perspective. She writes that the global value of reef tourism is $36 billion a year, and that coral reef food production and property protection value is estimated to be $172 billion each year. 
Another statistic that Jennifer provides is related to jobs, in that coral reefs contribute to 70,000-plus full- and part-time jobs in southeast Florida. Seems like a no-brainer as to why we would want to protect this incredible ecosystem. But as we know, nothing is that easy. The objective of the strategic plan is simple and straightforward, and that is to reduce threats affecting coral reefs, particularly in the United States, and to restore coral reef ecosystem functions at an ecological scale. Now, the vision of NOAA's Coral Reef Conservation Program is that through effective management, coral reef ecosystems are thriving, diverse, resilient, and able to sustain valuable ecosystem services for present and future generations. When it comes to the United States, NOAA is working with several states and territories, and they include America Samoa, the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas, Florida, Guam, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Additionally, NOAA is partnering around the globe, including the Caribbean, Micronesia, the Southwest Pacific, and the Coral Triangle. The strategic plan is centered around four pillars, and I'll come back to them in a minute. Each pillar has one or more strategies that have both short-term objectives that will be met within the next two to five years, and then midterm objectives measured in five plus years. So let's turn our attention to the four pillars. One is to increase resilience to climate change. Two, improve fishery sustainability. Three is to reduce land-based sources of pollution. And the fourth pillar is to restore viable coral populations. I thought it would be powerful to talk about the bold goals of the plan, and they are powerful. The goals are, by 2040, coral will be resilient, genetically diverse, restored, or preserved. By 2040, 100% of key coral fisheries have stable or increased abundance. By 2040, 100% of the key watersheds have stable or improved quality. And by 2040, 40% of the key substrate remains free of sediment and algae to support coral recruitment. As I said, bold goals. When we look a little closer at the strategies supporting the pillars, we find some interesting things. In support of increasing resiliency to climate change, there is a single strategy, and that is to support a resilient-based management approach to climate change. I wasn't sure what a resilient-based management approach meant, so I had to do a little more research on that. Basically, a resilient-based management approach is an approach that uses knowledge of the current and future drivers influencing ecosystem functions to prioritize, implement, and adapt management actions that sustain ecosystems and human well-being. First thing is that they need to train the partners in the principles and tools used in resilient-based management, and then help them with assessment, monitoring, and research. 
Let's hope for success here, because as we saw in Chasing Coral, climate change is a huge threat. I want to finish up the discussion on NOAA's Coral Reef Conservation Program strategic plan by looking at some of the things they are focused on with respect to restoring viable coral population. One is to improve coral recruitment habitat quality by restoring herbivore populations on the reef. You know, those fish that graze on the algae that negatively impact coral. Another element is to work on reducing damage from vessel groundings and anchors and respond to emergency events. Also, they want to work on enforcing laws and seeking damages. Finally, another focus area is working on coral diseases and how to address them. I would encourage you to take a look at NOAA's Coral Reef Strategic Plan. It's a relatively short document at 18 pages, but packed with great material. You can download it from the About Us, um, Who We Are tab on the coralreef.noaa.gov. As we look to the future and the survival of coral reefs, it's great to know that our government does have a plan, and hopefully we will have the will to act. Let's go diving again. It's time for another installment of Your Next Dive here on Scuba Shack Radio. And this time we're heading down to Aruba, one happy island in the Lesser Antilles. I know that a lot of folks from the Northeast, anyway, are familiar with Aruba. I know that because the last time I was down there in October of 2009, I think it was the Boston Red Sox were in the World Series. And we were in the bar at the hotel watching the game And you might have thought we were in downtown Boston because there are so many people from New England there. Aruba is one of the three ABC islands that are independent countries within the Kingdom of the Netherlands. Those other two islands are Bonaire and Curaçao. Now of the three, Bonaire is probably the best known for diving, with Curaçao coming in second. Not many people think about Aruba as a first choice for diving, but it wouldn't sell it short. The ABC Islands are at the the southern end of the Caribbean Sea, just off the coast of Venezuela. Aruba is also the westernmost of the three, with Curaçao in the center, flanked by Bonaire to the east. One of the attractive features of these islands is that they are far enough south to be out of the typical hurricane tracks. That being said, they can sometimes be impacted with tropical storms. And with weather patterns evolving with climate change, nothing is fully predictable. For me, I think about going on a dive trip in one of two ways. First, there's those dive vacations. That's the places like Little Cayman Beach Resort or Cocoa View, where you pretty much go to exclusively dive with all your meals included. Then there is the vacation where you do some diving. That's places like Maui. I would say Aruba falls into the category of a vacation where you get to do some diving. 
My experience is diving from the west side of the island. That is also known as the high-rise section. Back in 2007 and 2009, when we visited, we had a timeshare at the Marriott Ocean Club. There are a lot of places to stay in that area, including the larger Marriott Surf, the Marriott Hotel, Hyatt Hilton, Holiday Inn, and more. Because this was a vacation where we also wanted to do some diving, we had to make our own arrangements for diving, and we chose Red Sail Sports. Red Sails operates their dive boats from the Hyatt Pier, and that is located between the Hyatt and Barcelo Resorts on Palm Beach. When you book your diving with them, you can also arrange for them to pick you up and with your gear from the hotel and then take you down to the boats. They were very convenient and prompt. Let's talk about their boats for a minute. They have three. Two of them are Pro 48 Rob Shirley dive boats, and the other is a custom 40-foot boat. My experience is with the Pro 48s, and I've got to say, they give the Newtons a run for their money. Lots of space to move around, sleek, easy to get on and off, and speedy, getting you to your dive sites quickly. So what about the diving? Well, I'm not sure why some might think it's not that good. I thoroughly enjoyed the dives. You can choose from two different trips. You can stay on the west side or head to the south coast. The south side tends to have deeper dives, or a little bit deeper, and if you want to go south, they say you have to have dove in the last two years and be an advanced open water diver or have at least 30 dives, and they enforce this. When we were there, they made a diver switch boats to the west coast because they hadn't dove in more than two years, even though they were an advanced open water diver and had more than 100 dives. Some of the south side sites include the Fingers, where I got to 120 feet, Captain's Choice at 100 feet, and the Jane Sea Wreck at 85. Really cool dives with visibility in the 60 to 80 foot range. When you dive on the west side, you'll visit the Arishi Plain Wreck, Blue Reef, and the Barge Debbie 2, and they're all within 40 to 60 foot range. Another great west side dive is the Perdinellis, a World War II tanker that was torpedoed. It's pretty busted up and spread out, but wow, there was a lot of fish life there. And at 25 to 30 feet, you can stay down for a really long time. But the signature dive on Aruba is the Antilla. The German freighter scuttled in 1940 is a massive wreck over 400 feet sitting in 60 feet of water. The first time we dove it in 2007, a small part of the top mast was still out of the water. By 2009, Hurricane Omar took care of that, and the top mast was no longer sticking out. It is an incredible wreck with an incredible story and an absolute must-dive if you get to Aruba. Both times we went to Aruba it was October, and the bottom temperature was a consistent 82 degrees Fahrenheit. Doesn't that sound nice? As I mentioned, this is more of a vacation where you dive, so there's not really any option for gear storage 
you have to lug it back and forth. That makes it a little bit inconvenient. Aruba is quite easy to get to from the northeast anyway, and at least um, you'll, you, when you leave, you clear U.S. Customs at the airport in Aruba. And no big lines in Miami, Newark, or New York. So while Aruba doesn't have the same reputation of, as Bonaire, in my opinion, it's still a fantastic place for your next dive. Well, that wraps up episode 47 of Scuba Shack Radio. Again, I want to thank everyone who continues to tune into the show. It is greatly appreciated. Please check out Scuba Shack Radio on Facebook as well, where I try to post interesting things from the show or pictures from past dive adventures. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks just before Christmas with another episode of Scuba Shack Radio. Until then, stay Stay safe, everyone. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Talk to you next time.